You're listening to the Study Legal English podcast, helping lawyers and law students become fluent in legal English. For more information, visit studylegalenglish.com. Hello and welcome to episode 77 of the Study Legal English podcast. I am your host Louise and today we are looking at what happens after a claim is served on a defendant. In the last episode, we looked at making a claim, including what kind of details the claimant needs to include in the claim form and how to serve a claim on a defendant. But in what ways can a defendant respond to a claim form and what is the pre-trial process? That's what we'll be looking at today. This episode is sponsored by italki. italki is an online platform where you can learn English with a real teacher. The platform is super simple to use. You simply go to the website, register, and there you can browse through lots of different teachers and then you can book a trial class. You can schedule a class to fit with what whatever time really you want to have class and then when it comes to taking the class you simply log into Skype or another online chat program such as Google Hangouts or something similar and you connect with your teacher and there you go you start having your classes so it's a really great way to learn and if you go to go.italki dot com forward slash study legal English, you will get $10 of italki credits for free when you purchase your first lesson. So check it out today. So in the last podcast episode, I asked you, how does a claimant serve a claim on a defendant? How does a claimant serve documents on a defendant? And I received some interesting answers. I got a nice answer from Alexandra Luxac on Facebook. And uh, maybe you'll remember Alexandra Luxac featured in a podcast episode interview, episode 56, where we talked about her work as a legal English teacher and also her resources that she's developed. So it's quite interesting. I recommend you check it out. So I'll just read Alexandra's message. She said, I think in Poland, using social media to serve documents is not possible. They are sent by registered mail or certified registered mail, which requires the defendant to collect the documents in person and confirm it with a signature. So, interesting. Uh, So now I've got a new question for you, and it is how long do parties have to wait from the date of the claim being issued until the final trial date? How long do parties have to wait from the date of the claim being issued until the final trial date? Send in your answers to louise at studylegalenglish.com or you can leave a comment at studylegalenglish.com forward slash episode 77 or if you're listening on YouTube, simply leave a comment in the comments box below. So now let's get started. What happens when a claim is served on a defendant? 
there are a number of documents which the claimant serves on the defendant. These include the claim form with the particulars of the claim and a defence response pack. The response pack contains an acknowledgement of service form, an admission form and a defence and counterclaim form. The forms are slightly different depending on what type of claim it is. For example, for non-money claims or for return of goods claims or a claim for an unspecified amount, these forms are slightly different to those compared to claims involving a specified amount of money. So when a defendant receives these documents, there are several options as to what happens next. Firstly, if the defendant admits the whole claim or the amount claimed, he should complete an admission form. Here the defendant is basically putting up his hands and saying, hey guys, sorry, I did it. I'm liable. He's admitting liability for the claim. And when he has filled in the admission form, it should be sent to the claimant. Secondly, another option is that the defendant may only admit part of the claim. In this case, he should fill out the admission form. uh, But on top of this, he should fill out a defence form. Both of these documents should then be sent to the issuing court at the address given on the claim form, which was served on the defendant. Thirdly, if the defendant wishes to dispute the whole claim or to make a counterclaim, he should fill out the defence and counterclaim form. Here the defendant states which allegations he denies and also gives reasons why this is the case. The defence form should then be sent to the issuing court within 14 days of the claim being served on the defendant. And if the defendant makes a counterclaim, the defendant will have to pay a court fee. If the defendant needs more time, then he should fill out the acknowledgement of service form and send this to the court. This gives him a total of 28 days instead of 14 days to prepare his defence. One other option is that the defendant may fail to respond at all to the claim. Here, the claimant may apply to the court for a default judgment against the defendant. The claimant may ask the court to make an order in default, which orders the defendant to pay the money and any costs of the claim. A default means a failure to fulfil an obligation. And a default judgment means a judgment without trial where the defendant has failed to respond to a claim. So with a default judgment, obviously there is no trial. And also if the defendant acknowledges liability, then that's also the end of legal proceedings. But what happens if a defendant files a defence? After the defendant files a defence, the court will allocate the case to a particular track. And there are three tracks in England and Wales. First of all, the small claims track, second of all, the fast track, and thirdly, the multi-track. Each track is for a specific type of claim, and the procedure is slightly different for each one. So 
I'll go into a bit more detail of these now. So what is the small claims track? The small claims track is for claims with a value limited to £1,000 for cases involving personal injury and certain housing disputes and with a value limited to £10,000 for other types of disputes. The pre-trial process for small claims is pretty simple. For example, parties do not need to follow strict rules relating to evidence and also strict rules relating to disclosure. And normally cases are dealt with quite quickly. Statistics from January to March 2019 show that small claims took approximately 37 weeks to go to trial from the date of issue, from the issue of the claim. So parties have to generally wait 37 weeks. Once the claim has been allocated to the small claims track, the court will give directions and fix a date for final hearing. The court may also propose that parties settle this dispute outside of court, for example, through mediation, which can only happen if the parties agree to it. Generally, in the small claims track, expert evidence is not given. Expert evidence is evidence given to the court on a specific topic on which the court does not have the technical or specialist knowledge about this particular thing. Parties often represent themselves for small claims instead of instructing a solicitor or barrister and costs are restricted. It's not so common to have a preliminary hearing They are only held in very limited circumstances and this is to ensure that small claims are dealt with very quickly and cheaply. If a preliminary hearing is held, the court can treat this as the final hearing and actually deal with the whole case if the parties agree. So moving on, what is the fast track and the multi-track? Claims with a value of over £10,000 are dealt with by either the fast track or the multi-track. Again, the courts encourage parties to settle disputes outside of court without a trial where appropriate and the courts may suspend proceedings to allow time for parties to do this. The fast track is mostly for straightforward claims with a value of between £10,000 and £25,000, with other claims being dealt with by the multi-track. In order to decide whether the claim will be allocated to the fast track or the multi-track, the court sends the parties an allocation questionnaire, which they must fill in and send back to the court. The allocation decision will be made by a judge of the county court or the high court, depending on which court issued the claim. And in making this decision, the court takes into account a number of factors, such as the financial value of the claim, the nature of the remedy sought, the complexity of the case, and the number of parties involved. So, If the claim is allocated to the fast track, the court will give a number of directions. It will fix the trial date, give directions for the management of the case 
and set a very strict timetable, setting out the deadlines for the parties to complete a number of pre-trial steps. The parties must comply with this procedure, including disclosing documents, serving witness statements and expert evidence, the latter expert evidence being limited to one expert per party. The parties are also sent a pre-trial checklist to confirm compliance with the court's directions. Their aim is for cases to be heard within 30 weeks of being issued. However, things aren't running quite as smoothly as they should be. And statistics from January to March 2019 show that there is approximately 59 weeks to wait for parties for the trial from the date of the claim being issued. So moving on to the multi-track, the multi-track is for more complex cases of under £25,000 and for all cases over £25,000. There's not exactly a standard procedure for the multi-track and uh, instead this track is quite flexible. It allows the most suitable approach depending on the parties and the type of claim. Generally, however, when the case is allocated to the multi-track, the court will give directions for the management of the case and set a timetable with steps to be taken by the parties. The court may also fix a date for a case management conference and a pre-trial review. A case management conference is an informal meeting of the parties where the parties review the steps that they have already taken to prepare for the case. They set timetables, they monitor costs and they take note of anything which the parties have agreed on until now. As in the fast track, in the multi-track parties are also sent a pre-trial checklist to confirm compliance with the court's directions. And if the parties don't complete this, if they don't file it with the court, then the court may strike out the case. This means that the case will not be heard. If the court does receive the pre-trial checklist from each of the parties, then the court may decide to hold a pre-trial review. This is where the judge decides a number of matters related to the trial For example, setting a timetable for the final trial, deciding who will give evidence and in what order, and explaining what documents need to go in the trial bundle. A trial bundle means the collection of papers and documents which each party must prepare for the court for the trial. Another important point to talk about is where the trial will be held. There are two main courts in England and Wales which hear civil claims at first instance, and these are the County Court and the High Court. There are a number of county courts throughout England and Wales, and they hear the majority of civil claims. They can deal with claims allocated to the small track, the fast track and the multi-track. The High Court, on the other hand, is split into three divisions. The Chancery Division, which deals with finance and property matters. The Queen's Bench Division, which deals with a wide range of matters, including contract and tort. 
and the family division, which deals with family matters. The High Court hears the higher value and higher complexity cases. For example, money claims with a value exceeding £100,000 or exceeding £50,000 for personal injury claims. However, the County Court and the High Court have exclusive jurisdiction for particular matters. For example, claims related to unlawful discrimination must be brought in the County Court, whereas defamation claims involving libel and slander must be brought in the High Court. If you want to know more about the courts and the court system of England and Wales, then I suggest you listen to episode 47 and 48, where I talk a little bit more about this. So what about disclosure? In civil law, disclosure has two stages. Firstly, the parties send each other a list of documents which may adversely affect their own case, adversely affect the other party's case or support the other party's case. Secondly, once the parties receive this list, each party may request copies of those documents to inspect. The general rule is that parties must disclose documents requested by the parties. However, there are exceptions to the rule. For example, parties do not need to disclose documents which are no longer in their control. And if a party has a duty or a responsibility to withhold this particular document from inspection, then they are entitled to do so. Pay attention to the language that I use. I talk about disclosure here. In the past, this process was known as discovery and inspection. However, with the introduction of the civil procedure rules, this changed to simply disclosure. However, this term discovery is used in some other jurisdictions. With regards to evidence, the rules on evidence are set out in part 32 of the civil procedure rules. The court can give directions as to what evidence it requires, the nature of such evidence and how it should be presented in court. Evidence at trial is given orally and in other hearings it's given in writing. Therefore, in the pretrial process, each party is required to serve on the other any witness statements which they intend to rely on at trial. A witness statement is a written statement of evidence. So before the trial, at any point, a party may submit an interim application requesting the court to make a decision about something. This could be, for example, a request for a party to disclose documents for inspection or for an interim injunction. An interim injunction could be to prohibit a party from doing something or to order a party to do something. Another point worth mentioning is that the case may not actually go to trial. In certain instances, the court may actually give a summary judgment. And according to part 24 of the civil procedure rules, the court will do this if it considers that the claimant has no real prospect of succeeding with the claim or the defendant has no prospect of successfully defending the claim. And 
that there is no compelling reason why the case should be disposed of at the trial. In other words, there's no reason why a summary judgment shouldn't be issued. So that brings me to the end of this episode. I hope you found it useful and uh, you've learned something new. In the next episode, we'll be looking at the trial, the civil trial itself. Don't forget to send me in your answers to the question, how long does it take from a claim being issued until the trial date? You can send me in your answers to louise at studylegalenglish.com or leave a comment on the website or on YouTube. As always, members get access to extra benefits, which you can find at studylegalenglish.com forward slash episode 77. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, please share it with others. Please subscribe to the YouTube channel or subscribe on iTunes and on your podcast apps. And to find other ways to support, just go to studylegalenglish.com forward slash support. So thank you for listening and see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Study Legal English podcast. If you really want to get ahead, why not become a member and gain access to many learning resources? Visit studylegalenglish.com forward slash pricing.